0: Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. I'm your host, Ed Smith.
1: There's a a great line in our House Ethics Code that says that representatives should avoid conduct that even appears to violate the trust that the people have placed in them.
0: That was Doug Himes, the House Ethics Counsel in Tennessee, who joined the podcast to discuss ethics in the legislature. We're also joined by Mark Quiner, director of NCSL's Center for Ethics and Government, and Elizabeth Bartz, the CEO and president of state and federal communications. Every state has rules governing interactions among legislators, legislative staff, and lobbyists, whether those lobbyists represent business interests, nonprofit groups, or others. The rules have evolved over the past few decades and are often being updated. Doug and Mark discussed how ethics rules have changed during their years working in the legislature and how attitudes towards ethics It's changed among legislators, staff, and lobbyists. They also discussed the variety of approaches states take to make sure everyone is following the rules. Elizabeth explained how companies like hers assist businesses to ensure compliance with different laws in every state and often municipalities as well. She also talked about the value of transparency, especially in light of recent reporting about the United States Supreme Court. Here's our discussion, starting with Doug and Mark. Mark, Doug, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Ed, for organizing this. And Doug, as always, it's always nice to have you on the panel, too. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Ed. Appreciate having the opportunity to be with you today. And Mark.
0: Well, nice to sit down with both of you this morning. And our focus today is ethics rules and legislatures, particularly as they apply to the interactions among legislators, legislative staff, and lobbyists. And everyone ensures that the rules are followed. Now, both of you have extensive experience with the subject, and I'd like to start by having you tell our listeners just a little about your background. And Mark, uh, why don't you go first?
2: Well, I worked for the Wyoming legislature for 26 years, and I've worked with state legislatures for over 34 years. I actually got into the ethics world because I drafted the ethics and civility legislation for Wyoming quite a while ago. The Efforts were pushed by a national organization, not local, to the states, and there had not been an ethics scandal in Wyoming. So the first version of that law was not well received by the Wyoming residents because they thought it was too strict. So we eased the travel, food, and beverage restrictions. I love working with state legislatures because they truly work for the people and they serve tirelessly and often without much remuneration.
0: Now, Doug, let me ask you about your role in the Tennessee Legislature. I, I, before we started, I I told you that when you first came into this role, I read a story about you in the Tennesseean, and I was struck by how positive everyone was about you. So, so how has that gone, and how did you end up in that role?
1: Well, thanks, Ed. That's and that's very kind of you. Um, I'm fortunate to work with some wonderful people, both legislators and staff. I certainly appreciate them. So I started in the Tennessee General Assembly as an intern in 1992, and I'm currently serving as the Ethics Council and the Research Director for the House of Representatives. I've served as counsel to the Ethics Committee all but 11 months uh, since 2003, and in my current role as Ethics Council since t- 2019. And in this role, I hope that I am a resource for our legislators, our staff. And the citizens of Tennessee, when they have questions about ethics, campaign finance and compliance.
0: Well, Doug, let me ask you a real fundamental question. Why is ethical behavior important for everyone involved in the legislative process?
1: You know, I think it's a a simple answer to me is it's about trust and it's about confidence that that trust instills. You know, it's confidence in the system and it's confidence in the people uh, that are, are, are in the system. There's a a great line in our House Ethics Code that says that representatives should avoid conduct that even appears to violate the trust that the people have placed in them. I think it's very true. And when I do uh, trainings here in Tennessee and talk to the members and talk to the staffs, I always emphasize that while that is in the Ethics Code for the representatives, it applies uh, not only to them, but also to the staff members to ensure that we keep the people's confidence uh, and do everything that we can to act in an ethical way.
0: Well, Mark, I think that Doug points out the complexity of this: that the ethics we're talking about apply, of course, to the lawmakers, the elected people, but it also applies to the legislative staff and, and to the people who are lobbying the legislature, whether those be interests of corporate people or nonprofits that are advocating for uh, for their positions. And I wonder. With all that in mind, how do you define ethics as it occurs and applies in a legislative setting?
2: Well, I think to build off what Doug just said, I would say that in a word, ethics is doing the right thing for the right reason. And it all stems from your source of values. What's important to you and what makes you tick? And why do you do what you do? To me, that's ethics
0: in a nutshell. Mark, let me let me stay with you for a minute. As we know, in almost any policy area, every state does things their own way. It's almost impossible to find one state doing something exactly the same as another state. And I wonder if that's true, of course, with legislatures when it comes to ethics. And if you could talk about sort of a basic timeline of how ethics rules have evolved and in the range of approaches states take. I I think, as I mentioned to you, when I was a kid, my father was a lobbyist, uh, and we're talking the late 50s and 1960s. For some of our audience, that will seem like ancient history. But things were, uh, to put it mildly, pretty loose back then. And I wonder if you can talk about how that's changed a little bit.
2: Absolutely. That's a good question. You know, nowadays, I think every state has some version of an ethics law. And just a few decades ago, that was not the case. Uh, Many states did not have anything on the books. They might have had informal rules and regulations or some sort of administrative procedure. You know, I'm often asked, which state has the best ethics law? I simply believe that each state legislature is different and each state legislature must do what works for them. Ethics, laws, and rules have evolved through the years, but basically they've stayed somewhat the same, and each state, again, has to do what works for them. Ethics, laws, and rules are meant to be a guideline. They're formal and in place. I like to think of ethics as a big E versus the little e, and the little e are the formal laws, rules, regulations that are written down, but they can't cover every instance, situation, and behavior. Rather, I think each legislator must decide why they wish to comply with the formal laws, the little e, and do the right thing. This is where the big E comes into play. What are your internal core values that help you determine your why? Why do you want to be ethical? Is it just for mere show to keep you out of trouble, or is it because you want to do the right thing for the right reason? When you do that, I think that's the definition of character. What you do when no one is watching reputation, on the other hand, is what you do when someone is watching. When character and reputation match, that's an authentic, ethical way of living.
0: And Doug, let me ask you specifically just about Tennessee. How have the ethics rules evolved in your state?
1: Thanks, Ed. You know, I think Mark uh, was really good about pointing out that it wasn't that long ago before we had a, a whole lot of standards, rules, or statutes. From a legislative side, the House Ethics Committee came into being in 1990. From a statutory side, over the course of, from 1980 in Tennessee, we first adopted the Campaign Financial Financial Disclosure Act. Uh, in 95, the Campaign Contribution Limits Act. And in 2006, the Comprehensive Government Ethics Reform Act, which created our state ethics commission. And since then, just since 2021, we've had probably about uh, half a dozen uh, bills that have made uh, changes to, these, uh, to this set of statutory guidance, some significant, that affect legislators, that affect legislative staff, executive branch staff, lobbyists, and citizens um, as it pertains to campaign finance and ethics.
0: Well, that's great. I think a lot of times people don't understand the amount of effort states have put in on this and, and how there's not just one rule, the things, there's iterations of them. Now, those of us who work in the legislative space know that lobbyists come in all shapes and sizes. There are uh, lots of nonprofit groups that come and advocate for their point of view to the legislature, and there are business interests that come as well. And uh, despite the negative connotation the word often has, this is a core part of uh, how our government works. And I wonder, Doug, with that in mind, can you talk about some actual ethical issues that have come up during your tenure and and how they were dealt with? I I think sometimes a story about these things is a a better way for people to understand it.
1: It's a really good question, Ed. And, you know, I think the public perception that lobbyists and employers of lobbyists have is is sometimes uh, unfair, um, both to the lobbyists and their employers, what I've found, not only in Tennessee, but from people I've met around the country, is that lobbyists, employers, lobbyists are good folks who want to do the right thing and comply with the rules and statutes that are out there for them to follow. I think that's a goal that everyone has in mind in helping keep that confidence level in the process. As a general in Tennessee, um, lobbyists and employers are lobbyists can't provide gifts to legislators or legislative staff. And we've had a few examples that I could share. I think uh, this will be a repeat for Mark, but as we came out of the pandemic, one of the exceptions we have to our gift rule is for in-state events and receptions. And during the pandemic, that was pretty much all eliminated. As we came out some of the employers, lobbyists were, were creative in, in how they wanted to try to get people together. Jack Daniels decided they'd have a virtual reception. It was a great idea. Um, they communicated with the State Ethics Commission and talked about it, had uh, approval for it, sent out invitations. The day of the event came and the headline was, Lawmakers Enjoy a Bottle of Jack at Virtual Reception. So there was just a bit of a miscommunication uh, about what would be included in the virtual reception bag that was provided for the folks to to participate, and and that was one of those things that we worked through, and we had some new guidance from our our state ethics commission about what was appropriate uh, in terms of what could be in a basically a, a. Virtual reception bag. We've passed the pandemic stage, thankfully, and now we're back uh, more normal. And I think another example could be the exception we have to our gift band for out of state um, conferences, uh, like uh, NCSL's uh, Legislative Summit coming up in Indianapolis. At those events, there's often state nights. And the way our code's written is that there's an exception for state nights or, quote, other events, end quote. As we get into this time of year, some of the folks that represent employers, uh, some of the lobbyists have have asked, and I've worked with them and I've worked with the Ethics Commission to make sure that those other events are legitimate events, that everybody plays by the same rules, that they send out invitations, that it's a defined group of people. And it's not a one-on-one or a casual meeting, but an actual event. And I think that communication process has is, is helped us and helps us make sure that we're addressing issues that the public sees as um, something that we need to make sure are handled in, in a uh, ethical way.
0: Well, and I suspect that a lot of the readers uh, who saw those headlines didn't. Realize all the effort that had gone into trying to make sure that the event was done in an appropriate fashion, um, and that's that's probably not good for public perception.
1: Just follow up with you there, Ed. You know, Brown Foreman, who's the parent of, of Jack Daniels, is a is a great corporate citizen, um, and they did a lot during the pandemic, including providing hand si- sanitizer that they um, uh, made at their distilleries, um, both to public. Uh, uh, departments, emergency departments in Tennessee and in Kentucky. And they did. They did everything right. But even if you do everything right, because it's ethics, it's not always easy to know what that answer is. And I think Mark hit on this earlier. A lot of times, you know, the I'll end a conversation with, you know, somebody asked, can I do this? And I said, well, you could do it, but should you do it? And I think that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get people to think about, as I said before, to not even violate not even appear to violate the trust that the people have placed in them.
0: Well, Mark, let me come back to you on this because, uh, as I mentioned, there were the days back in the 50s and 60s, and probably later than that, when passing someone an envelope with $10,000 in cash in it was probably not unusual. It was certainly unethical, but it was not unusual. Uh, Obviously, from the discussion we're having, we're way past those days. But I wonder, in your career, uh, and you've you've been around this world for a long time, how have you seen attitudes change? I mean, we've seen, the we talked about how the rules have changed. But uh, do people stop and think more, do you think, now than they ever would have in the past about whether I should do this as opposed to, can I do this, as Doug was just saying?
2: Thanks, Ed. That's a good question. I, I like what Doug said about the examples. And, you know, I was recently asked to testify in front of an ethics committee in, an, in a state, and I'll never forget, prior to my testimony, the ethics commission executive director testified and the committee wanted to know, you know, what's going on? Is there corruption out there, etc.? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, 97% of the complaints that we get of the violations of the ethics code by lobbyists are simply reporting errors. They're not, you know, sinister, like you said, Ed, slipping somebody uh, an envelope with a lot of cash in it. They're simply reporting errors of, by not knowing the requirements of lobbyists to report. So I would say that over the years, I think there's been tremendous progress made in the area of lobbying and ethics. I've had the opportunity to address lobbying groups and I've always enjoyed doing so. And did you know that there is a code of ethics that has been adopted by the National Institute for Lobbying and Ethics? It's a short code and I highly recommend anyone interested in this area to read that. I certainly recommend, and strongly do so, that all lobbyists read that code of ethics that the National Institute has adopted. Anyway, it talks about the importance of compliance with applicable laws, rules, and regs, what I call the little E, but it also covers topics like honesty, integrity, professionalism, conflicts of interest, due diligence, confidentiality, and the like. That's the big E. I like it because it's very similar to most ethics laws that legislators and staff must follow. I have found a recent heightened awareness in the importance of ethics from both sides of the legislative coin, legislators and lobbyists alike.
0: Well, Mark, we'll be sure to uh, put the link to those that uh, code in the show notes so people can, can check that out. And and Doug, kind of a similar question. Uh, what have you seen? I mean, I know you talk to people around the country about this. What have you seen both there in Tennessee and around the country in terms of how legislators and lobbyists, what their attitudes are about this?
1: You know, I think what folks are looking for now um, or where people are headed is, is more disclosure, more transparency. And I think you balance those with uh, more training and more education, because I think it's an important piece of it. I think that both the Tennessee Ethics Commission and myself to try to do our best um, to educate our clients, whether that be the the legislators, the legislators, staff, the lobbyists, the employers, the lobbyists, and the citizens about the laws as they change and, and at the rules as they change. So that's a big part of it is is, is the training and education. 1990 was the first time that lobbyists in Tennessee r- registered, and that registration continues. The lobbyists are required to go have annual training, and they're prohibited from contributing uh, to campaigns. On the employer of lobbyist side, you know, over the years we've added biannual reports where lobbyist compensation is reported in ranges, and that expenditures to influence legislation is also reported in ranges. We've also, more recently, enhanced uh, interim reporting for PACs that many employers or lobbyists have, and also require um, all expenditures uh, to be reported instead of allowing unitemized expenditures. That's a recent change as as well, and all that requires from the state ethics commission side and from from my position to to educate and inform people about. where to look, what what to disclose, and where to look and find those disclosures.
0: I'd have to say our most high-profile ethics conversation in the country right now, revolving around the Supreme Court, transparency does seem to be a big, big part of that. And that seems to have provoked a great deal of maybe outrageous, too strong a word, but certainly a lot of concern from people. As we get to ready to wrap up here, Mark, I wonder what final thoughts you might want to share with legislators. And also, uh, because I always shamelessly promote NCSL's legislative summit, if you'd like to talk just a little bit about the lobbyist panel that you're going to do there in Indianapolis in August. Sure.
2: Well, I'll take the first, the last question first, if that's okay with you guys. We're doing a panel discussion this year at Summit, and as Doug said, it's in Indianapolis. On Wednesday, August 16th, 1.45 to 3 p.m., we will have a panelist of lobbyists this time. I will moderate it anyway. It's called The Ethical Do's and Don'ts From a Lobbyist Perspective. And I think it's important to get their perspective because they are very involved in the legislative process, as you all both well know. And Doug is on the firing line of this of this process every day. The description of our panel is What ethical challenges do legislators and staff face today, and how does lobbying factor in? Come listen to a panel of experts with a collective 50 years of lobbying experience as they shed light on the fourth branch of government. Learn more about the best ways to handle potential ethical dilemmas. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. I think it will be very valuable to all attendees at the summit. To answer your first question, Ed, I first of all wanna thank you for putting this together and thank you, Doug, for your valuable input. As I said, you're on the front line of this enforcement every day. And I think I would like to remind everyone that we're all in this together. The value of legislation comes from our state legislatures and it's only as valuable as the process by which those laws are enacted. If legislation is conducted in a fair, open and ethical manner, then the public has faith in the legislative institution. We must all work to that end, legislators, legislative staff, lobbyists, constituents, and all citizens, since we are all impacted by the laws that are enacted. And again, I think it's so important for everyone to follow the ethics laws, rules, and regulations, the little e, And to do so for the right reasons, out of a sense of values-based living, the Big E. Thanks again for the opportunity to participate. It's an honor to work for NCSL and for the state legislatures. And I also want to thank the foundation who funds my office and makes this all possible.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. And Doug, what parting thoughts would you have for uh, folks in our audience?
1: Well, thanks, Ed. I, I guess I'll echo Mark uh, yet again and, and thank you for having us on. Thank Mark for being on this um, podcast with me and thank NCSL for, for hosting in general. I guess I would, in one word, say nachos. Uh, and you think, why am I saying nachos? So I'll end with one last story. It was uh, last week I got an email from one of our Tennessee lobbyists who wrote to me and said that he, he had a, a what well, he said, a silly question. And it was about a plate of nachos. And in an interaction he had recently where a a legislator came up to him after he'd already been at the restaurant with his plate of nachos, the question was, did we do the right thing and who paid for the nachos? And I'll tell you the, the answer here. They did do the right thing. And I was impressed that they wanted both of them to make sure that they had. And I think that's that's what we're going for. And we want people, uh citizens to have confidence and trust in the system we have in place. And I think the important thing there is whether you're a legislator, a legislative staffer, uh, a lobbyist, a citizen, get to know who in your state is in charge of of ethics. And and there's maybe multiple people like here in Tennessee Um, where we have an ethics commission, and you have me as the House uh, sort of ethics officer in my role as ethics counsel, and there's others. But we're here to help. We don't want to get anybody, but we want everybody to understand what there is out there and make good decisions. And I think that's beneficial for democracy.
0: Well, I do think it's so important, particularly for constituents, to feel as though the process is fair. They they might not be happy with the, the, the policy that's passed or the bill that's passed, but as long as they don't feel it was done behind closed doors, I think there's a, a great deal more confidence in the legislature. I want to thank both of you for sharing your extensive expertise in this. And I know that this is not a topic that uh, we really talk about very much, so I think it's a, a really great opportunity to jump into it. And of course, we encourage everyone to go to Indianapolis and attend Mark's session and hear what the, what the lobbyists have to say. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. I'll be right back after this short break with Elizabeth Bartz from State and Federal Communications.
2: Join your colleagues August 14th through the 16th in Indianapolis for the 2023 NCSL Legislative Summit featuring an MVP lineup of speakers, including Peyton Manning, Strategic Futurist Nancy Giordano, HGTV star Mina Starsiak-Hawk, WNBA legend Tamika Catchings, the first female NFL coach Jen Welter, the founder of the History Makers Juliana Richardson, and Cedric King, a decorated veteran who defied the odds to run the Boston Marathon on artificial legs. Don't miss out on this opportunity to hear from these and other policy experts. Save your seat today for this must-attend conference by registering at ncsl.org.
0: Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: Well, thank you, Ed, for inviting me to discuss these important issues.
0: Well, I really welcome this opportunity to talk because you have such a wealth of experience in the world of lobbying and compliance with ethics rules. And I wonder if you could just start with a little bit of your background and how you came to found state and federal communications.
3: Well, this all started way back, you know, before Al Gore created the Internet. I had graduated with a B.A. in Journalism and a M.A. in Political Science from Kent State University, flashes forever. Actually, the company in its earliest stages was a department of my employer at the time, State and Federal Associates. I was given the opportunity to purchase the department, and so began State and Federal Communications. The company has grown from one, me, to now 43 with offices in Akron, Ohio, and Washington, D.C.
0: Well, that's quite a bit of growth over that time. And and given how long you've been in this business, I, I wonder just what are the most significant changes you've seen when it comes to the world of ethics and compliance?
3: 30 years to be exact, Ed. Significant changes are year after year the amount of scrutiny that companies receive with all of their government relations work, lobbying, political contributions, procurement activities, and the emphasis that is required to stay compliant. This isn't getting easier.
0: Well, I think I mentioned uh, in our earlier conversation, in my conversation with with Mark and Doug before uh, before our conversation, that I grew up in this world. My father was a lobbyist for a Fortune 500 company. He worked in D.C. most of the time. And certainly uh, it was a different world then, kind of the wild, wild west back in, believe it or not, the 50s and 60s that I'm referencing here. But considering all that change, all that change that came even before you got in this game and then the change in the last 30 years, at this point, do you think, particularly on the state level, state efforts and ethics rules are adequate?
3: Well, it differs from state to state. We like that. But all states, in general, are making efforts to position ethics rules to establish confidence in the process. So, I guess the short answer is yes.
0: What do you think is the single most important step private sector organizations can take to ensure that its interactions with states are ethical?
3: Well, that's an easy question. They should hire state and federal communications. Did you expect a different answer? realistically, though, they cannot ignore compliance regulations and rules at the state and federal levels.
0: And the truth is they really probably do need some help, whether it's your organization or another one, because these are complicated in places. As you say, every state is different, which is true probably across most public policy areas. It certainly seems as though guidance is true. Do do a lot of private sector organizations look for outside help or they create Uh, mechanisms within their own organizations to handle this?
3: Well, I think a lot of people do try to do it internally, but larger companies have issues doing that because their people are all over the country. This is our primary responsibility to our clients at state and federal communications, keeping them compliant. And a lot of people are now outsourcing this to organizations like ours, that can help them to stay on top of what's going on in the states and federal government and the municipalities who now want to make sure that they're a little different than their state counterparts.
0: So it's gotten more complicated than with uh, uh, some more players coming in and and looking to to ensure this.
3: It is definitely it is definitely difficult for people to do and so we try to help them. We have two services We have an online guidebook that people can subscribe to, companies subscribe to, but our primary business involves assisting corporations and trade associations who outsource their overall government compliance to us. We know when the reports are due.
0: I feel like a broken record on this one because I have asked this question so many times in the last couple of years, but to what degree has this whole system, in terms of how lobbyists interact with legislators, legislative staff. How did the pandemic affect that? It seems to have affected everything else.
3: Well, it definitely did. Unfortunately, it involved return on investment. Companies were financially lean during the pandemic. They wanted to cut back expenditures on assuring that they maintained proper ethical practices, but knew they still needed to stay compliant. So they became more critical on how they spent their government relations dollars, and sometimes not in a wise way.
0: So let me ask you this. I think that the uh, the 800-pound gorilla of ethics lately has been the discussion about the Supreme Court. And of course, without drawing any conclusion about the activity of the justices, certainly a lot of people, maybe for the first time in a long time, have seen big headlines on news sites and whatnot about compliance by the court, particularly around some financial issues. And I wonder, one, what your thoughts are about all that. And if there are new ethics rules drawn up uh, for the court, how do you think that might affect states and, and how they handle this issue?
3: Well, this is a political issue which almost demands different responses from either side. Our company takes no position on this matter from a business perspective. We stay neutral to protect all of our clients equally. Personally, though, ethics guidelines have always been assumed to be at the highest standards with the courts. If these standards are becoming weak, then added guidelines are necessary for all judges on any bench. Assuring ethical guidelines are maintained is vitally important and starts at the top and migrates through the states.
0: Do you see this issue with the court? provoking conversation in the states? From I know that you talk to people all across the country all the time. Is it come up in conversation? Uh, are, are they hearing from their constituents?
3: It does. People are talking about it. I was just in Brussels at a study group that was uh, put on by the Public Affairs Council, and we were talking about it there. People think it is something that needs to be addressed, and somebody needs to govern the U.S. Supreme Court now. I'm not sure who that is.
0: They, they don't seem to be too sure uh, uh, who it is or, or whether anybody should either from some of the public statements from the justices. Elizabeth, I wonder, as we get ready to wrap up, what else would you like to share?
3: I think it's important to know that a lot of lobbyists, you know, they get down, they get blasted a lot. And we work with companies that want to stay compliant, want to be true to what the state is requiring that needs to be reported. We're very transparent in the work that we do for our companies. We provide the states with the information that they need. We have an excellent rapport with the people in the states. And, you know, I just think that as people understand what is going on in lobbying and ethics. Campaign finances is a big year right now. States are dealing with campaign contribution limits for next year. I hear we have a couple of elections coming up, (laughs) whether we wanted it or not. I just think we're all trying to do the right thing.
0: Well, I think that's a, a a great point to end on, and I thank you so much for sharing your really vast experience in this area because it's, uh, it's one I think a lot of people don't know that much about. Thank you so much, Elizabeth.
3: Thank you, Ed. Really enjoyed this.
0: I've been speaking with Doug Himes, Mark Quiner, and Elizabeth Bartz about ethics rules and compliance in state legislatures. Thanks for listening. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Story, NCSL's CEO, hosts Legislatures, the Inside Story, where he focuses on leadership and legislatures. The Our American States podcast dives into some of the most challenging public policy issues facing legislators. On Across the Aisle, host Kelly Griffin tells stories of bipartisanship. Also check out our special series, Building Democracy, on the history of legislatures.